Hi, I'm Chris Green, the History Chap, telling stories that bring British history to life. In 55 and 54 BC, Julius Caesar led two military expeditions to Britain. Now, you'll probably know that Britain, or at least a large part of it, was part of the Roman Empire. But the mighty Caesar's invasions were nearly 100 years before that happened. Having conquered Gaul, modern-day France, the Roman leader turned his attention to the island of Britain, or Britannia. In the summer of 55 BC, Caesar's invasion fleet appeared beneath the white cliffs of Dover. And on top of those cliffs, waiting to meet him, were hundreds, maybe thousands of warriors. Their long hair billowing in the wind, their upper bodies bare, shaved, and dyed blue from woad. Chariots arrayed. The sight must have weakened even the hardest Roman legionnaire. In a fierce battle in the waves, Caesar's army stormed ashore, but having established a beachhead, disaster struck. A storm wrecked his fleet, and he was nearly stranded on this island on the edge of the known world. Salvaging most of his ships, he beat a retreat back across the channel. The following year he returned with an army of five legions, plus cavalry. Marching inland, he crossed the Thames and inflicted a series of defeats on the Britons under their leader, Cassivellaunus. But rather than adding Britannia to the Roman Empire, he once more withdrew, and Britain was to remain free from Roman rule for another century. This is the story of Julius Caesar's two invasions of Britain. Before I talk about Caesar's invasions, I want to briefly explore the island that he was heading to. At this time in history, the island known to the Romans as Britannia was not a unified political entity. It was divided into at least 27 tribal kingdoms. The roots of these ancient Britons are complex, ranging from those whose ancestors had arrived over a thousand years before, through to Belgic peoples of the southeast of the island, who had close cultural and family ties to the people residing just across the sea in modern-day France. So close were those ties that when Julius Caesar invaded Gaul, he found many Britons fighting alongside the Gauls against him. Despite some varying roots, the peoples of the island spoke a common Brythonic language and shared a similar religion, Druidism. In fact, it was also a religion shared with their Celtic kin across the channel in Gaul. Contrary to popular myths that Britain was covered in forests, Archaeological evidence shows that the southern part of the island was heavily cultivated and that the island supported a population of at least 2 million and possibly double that. Hill forts dotted the landscape and archaeological evidence also suggests that there were possibly more villages in some parts of southern Britain than there were in the Middle Ages. And those hill forts required considerable labour and organisation. So this society was a lot more organised than the Roman term barbarian would have you think. It was also a lot more sophisticated. Jewellery and decorations show not just intricate workmanship, but also similarities to Celtic societies across Northern Europe. In other words, they had contacts outside the island. Take, for instance, the exquisite ornamental shield found in the Thames near Battersea. Dating from somewhere between 350 BC and Caesar's arrival, the Battersea shield, which is housed in the British Museum, not only has these swirling curves depicting birds that we associate with the pan-European Celtic art, but is studded with red glass that originates from Italy. A Greek merchant and adventurer from modern-day Marseille, named Pythias, recorded two voyages to Britain. In fact, he circumnavigated the island, giving it a name, Britannia. Romans later adapted that name to Britannia. The origins of Britain and the story of the island before the Romans arrived is fascinating in its own right. But we could be here for hours, so I'll pass on it for the moment. However, if you'd like me to talk about it in the future, please just type yes in the comments below. And if there's enough interest, I'll come back to it. Anyway, 
Let's crack on with Caesar's invasions. Gaius Julius Caesar was about 50 years old. A Roman aristocrat, politician and soldier, he'd just spent about eight years conquering Gaul, modern-day France. And in 55 BC, he turned his eyes to this island across what we now call the English Channel. Considering that Britannia was not Gaul, why was Julius Caesar extending his job brief by taking an army across the sea to the island? <laughs> well, as ever in history, there are many competing theories, many of which are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Firstly, there was a purely military reason. Conquering Gaul was all well and good, but he needed to secure the territory. And that would prove difficult, with the Britons offering assistance to the Gauls. As I mentioned earlier, Britons even crossed the Channel to fight with the Gauls against the Romans. Now it was a refuge for exiles from Gaul, planning their fight back. And the backbone of that resistance was through the Gauls' religious leaders, the Druids. And it just so happened that this was the same religion shared by the Britons. In fact, the spiritual centre of the religion was in northwest Wales. In other words, Gaul would never be at peace while the Britons remained unsubdued. Or at least, those Britons closest to Gaul, across the Channel. The next reason for this military expedition was political. Since the previous year, Caesar was one of the three key players, almost rulers, in the Roman Republic, along with his rivals Pompey and the immensely wealthy Crassus. Now, whilst Caesar was in Gaul, Pompey and Crassus were in Rome, close to the levers of power. There was a danger that Caesar could be politically marginalised. A military victory, on the other hand, especially in a place that no Roman commander had ever gone before, would keep Caesar very much in the public eye. Another political reason, which goes hand in hand with that last one, was that a war of conquest offered the opportunity for booty. By this stage, the minting of coins was widespread in southern Britain, and many of those coins had found their way to Gaul, where they were seized by the conquering Romans. Rumours abounded of a country rich in minerals, as well as cattle and potential slaves. These, as the Roman writer Tacitus called, wages of victory, would give him even more wealth to further his political ambitions, especially when one of his rivals was the immensely wealthy Crassus. Just as a side benefit, those same wages of victory would buy the loyalty of his troops, which might come in handy in the increasingly violent and corrupt politics of Rome. And speaking of the vicious world of Roman politics, here's another reason for heading off to Britannia. If he didn't find a way of extending his military campaigns, there was a danger that he would be recalled to Rome as his job in Gaul was complete. And should this happen, Caesar might have lost his immunity from prosecution by political enemies in the Senate. He would also be removed from his army. So another war would keep his enemies at bay until Caesar had built up his power base. And finally, there is simple ego and curiosity. Britannia was on the edge of the known world, and in itself was pretty unknown. Caesar may well have wanted, as they said in Star Trek, to boldly go where no man had gone before, or at least no Roman. And of course, that in itself would do his political ambitions no harm either. Despite the lateness of the campaigning season, Caesar decided to cross the Channel. He assembled a fleet of just over 80 ships to transport his army into the unknown. Before he set out, however, he sent a single ship under a trusted officer, Gaius Volusinus, to scout out a suitable landing place. Exactly how far he spent scouting the coastline of what is now Kent is not certain. He certainly didn't go as far as the sheltered anchorage at Richborough, which was used in the Roman invasion a century later. Which either suggests that his scouting expedition was extremely fast, or not very in-depth. 
Of all the possible landing sites, Volusinus reported back to Caesar that the best was the beach directly beneath the white cliffs of modern-day Dover. Julius Caesar's expedition to Britain in 55 BC consisted of two legions, about 10,000 men, plus cavalry. Those numbers sound impressive, but as an invasion forces go, it's pretty small, especially when you consider the comparative size of Britain and the fact that it was almost completely unknown to the Romans. Added to that, it was late in the campaigning season, so physically he couldn't conquer the whole island before winter set in, which in itself meant that he would have to hunker down in Britain for the winter before resuming his campaign next year. Now, that is plausible, but it does ignore the politics of both Gaul and Rome. With Caesar stuck over in Britain, what would those Gallic tribes do in his absence? And moreover, sitting around through the winter in Britain would hardly keep him in the public eye in Rome. So either Caesar was incredibly confident that he could subjugate Britain in a couple of months, or, as most military historians suggest, this was not so much an invasion as a reconnaissance in force. With Volusinus's somewhat sketchy scouting mission completed, Caesar now played a card that he'd been keeping up his sleeve. That card went by the name of Commius, a Gallic leader whose bravery, good sense and loyalty to Rome was held in high regard by Caesar. The Roman also believed that Commius was well respected by the Britons who had listened to his message. That message was basically, you better surrender to Caesar when he arrives and save everyone a lot of trouble. Whatever Caesar's real intentions for the expedition, his fleet finally set sail. But almost from the outset, things didn't go according to plan. His cavalry took so long to embark that by the time they'd done so, the tide had turned and they were stuck in the port. So Caesar arrived off the coast of Kent without his cavalry support. He arrived at the spot where Gaius Valesinus had identified as the ideal landing place, that beach beneath the white cliffs of Dover. If those cliffs weren't a daunting enough challenge, what was on top of those cliffs was even more worrying. Hundreds of warriors were gathering to repulse the invaders, their long hair billowing in the wind, their upper bodies bare, shaved and dyed blue from woad, chariots arrayed. The sight must have weakened even the hardest Roman legionnaire. If the Gauls had been hard work, this lot looked even harder. It seems that Commius, rather than smoothing the way, had stirred up a hornet's nest. Indeed, you have to wonder exactly which side Commius was on. Caesar decided there had to be a better landing place and ordered his fleet north. And as his ships moved up the coast, the British army kept abreast with them. With still no sign of his cavalry, Caesar chose a beach to make landfall. Before I tell you what happened next, if you love learning about British history, then sign up for my free weekly newsletter. There's a link in the description below. Anyway, back to the story. Whilst no one is clear exactly where the Roman army made landfall, it seems to have been somewhere between Deal and Ramsgate. And now he ran into another problem. The drafts of his ships meant they couldn't navigate the shallow waters approaching the beach. His fully armoured soldiers would have to jump into waist-height water and wade ashore. And if the Roman legionnaires weren't keen on jumping into that deep water in their armour, they were even less keen on what waited for them on the shore. The British warriors who'd been following the fleet had now swept down to the shoreline. And even as they hesitated on their ships, the Romans came under a hail of javelins and spears launched from the beach. Eventually, the standard bearer of the 10th legion shouted, Jump, comrades, unless you wish to betray our eagle to the enemy. I, at any rate, intend to do my duty to my country and my commander. He promptly leapt over the side, clutching the eagle standard, and started to wade towards the awaiting Britons. This galvanised the men of the 10th legion, 
who leapt after him. Wet and weighed down by their armour, many were overwhelmed by the Britons. Caesar seems to have remained calm in this moment of dire peril, and started to send ships to support those units staggering ashore. Slowly the Romans found their formation and locked shields. Caesar now shifted those ships with artillery in the form of catapults and giant crossbows to the mass on the right flank of the enemy, and they raked the beach, forcing the Britons back. Now the Romans were able to form up both legions on the shoreline, and it was their turn to take the offensive. Their charge scattered the British defenders, but without cavalry, Caesar was unable to follow up. The Britons withdrew, bloodied but not beaten. Caesar had successfully landed on Britannia, and he established a camp at the top of the beach. And as to the standard bearer of the 10th, did he really shout those words? Well, we'll never know, as the only account was Caesar's. But as the Romans had won and the standard bearer was lauded as a hero, would he have bothered to say that actually an officer had kicked him overboard? <laughs> Probably not. The next morning, Britons arrived at the Roman camp seeking peace. With them was Commius, who claimed that the Britons had taken him prisoner. Well, whatever the truth, he now acted as an intermediary between Caesar and the locals. Caesar demanded hostages to secure peace, and over the coming days, more and more hostages arrived. Hostages were a major part of warfare for centuries. They were offered as an act of good faith and sincerity for peace. But they were not some old peasants. After all, what value to a leader was a peasant? Hostages came from their noble families. In other words, they had a vested interest in keeping the peace. Four days later, things dramatically changed. Finally, the transport ships containing Caesar's cavalry came into view. And with them were other ships bringing badly needed food supplies. Things were looking up for the Roman campaign in Britain. But just at that moment, the British weather intervened. A storm swept through the channel, scattering the fleet. Worse still, that same storm coincided with a high tide. Caesar's own fleet at anchor was wrecked. Anchor chains broke, ships crashed into each other, others were swept onto the shore. Whilst his own records don't say so, Julius Caesar must have looked on in dismay. Meanwhile, the British hostages were also looking on. No Roman cavalry, no serviceable fleet, food supplies running low, Caesar was stuck on the island at the edge of the world. Slowly and quietly, they slipped away. It says something about Julius Caesar that he immediately set about salvaging and repairing his ships, and he managed to save all but 12 of his 80-plus vessels. Whilst pleased with his work, he must have spotted the dwindling number of hostages, and knew that it didn't bode well. With food supplies running low, the 7th Legion was sent out to cut corn growing in the surrounding fields. Casting their weapons aside, the men set to work with gusto. And it was now, as they worked without their weapons, that British warriors burst out of the nearby woods. They fell on the legionnaires as they desperately ran to their arms. Back in his camp, Caesar saw the dust of battle, and leading the 10th Legion, he rushed to their rescue. Having managed to save the 7th, he fell back on his camp. The following morning, an army of Britain warriors arrived outside Caesar's camp. The Romans formed up, locked their shields, and advanced. It was the sort of fight that they excelled at against unarmoured infantry. Once more, the Romans defeated the British, but once more, their lack of cavalry meant they were unable to exploit the victory. Nevertheless, the next day, British tribal leaders again arrived and sued for peace. With autumn drawing on, Caesar decided to get out while the going was good. 
Once more, he demanded hostages, and then, even before the full quota had arrived, he embarked his men and sailed back to Gaul. Despite the fact he'd not added an inch to the Roman Empire and his victories had been far from conclusive, his expedition was hailed as a huge success back in Rome. The Senate ordered 20 days of public thanksgiving, and Julius Caesar's reputation soared. But would Julius Caesar bother to return to Britain? Seeing as only two tribes sent their full quota of hostages, it seems most Britons didn't think so. Or they felt they could outfight the Romans. Or they were simply kicking the can down the road in an age-old tradition that modern Brits would recognise. And as the days lengthened in the spring of 54 BC, it seems they were correct. No ships appeared on the horizon. But if they thought that Caesar had had enough or gained the PR he'd been seeking, they were wrong. It wasn't that he'd forgotten about them, it was just that he had a more pressing problem. A revolt in Gaul. The revolt was put down that year and proved a mere hiccup in Caesar's plans. Even whilst the revolt was in progress, he'd been gathering an invasion force that dwarfed the previous year's expedition. Finally, with Gaul back under Roman control, Julius Caesar felt confident enough to pay another visit to Britannia. This time, his fleet consisted of not 80, but 600 transport ships and 28 warships. And unlike last time, he had ordered them to be built with shallower drafts so they could run right up the beach. Inside those ships were five legions, somewhere approaching 25,000 men. Also present were 2,000 cavalry, who did make it to Britain this time. A further 100-plus ships accompanied the invasion force, bringing a variety of camp followers and those hoping to exploit the opportunities presented to them by this campaign. This was a very different undertaking to the previous year. And yet, despite the increased numbers and arriving on the island earlier in the summer, Caesar's aims and strategy continued to remain unclear. Was it about a total conquest or a bridgehead? Maybe it was about creating client states. We just don't know. But of course, once more, his own political career in Rome was probably at the forefront of whatever plans he had. His invasion fleet once more landed near Deal in Kent. This time, there was a marked difference. There were no warriors waiting for him. It seems the Britons had decided to suck him into the country and isolate him from the coast. Able to establish a camp without any opposition, his scouts brought him news that a British army was defending a hill fort about 12 miles away on the banks of the River Stour. He conducted a night march which brought him to the fort, which most historians agree was at Bigbury Hill. One of the problems with ancient history, and indeed history well into the Middle Ages, is that records are not always accurate. So we know Caesar fought a battle at a hill fort on the banks of a river, 12 miles from his base. But exactly where is open to debate? Bigbury Hill lies 12 miles from the Roman camp, just as Caesar recorded. However, there is another, less supported location at Littlebourne. On the downside, it's not exactly 12 miles direct line from Caesar's camp. It's 11 and a quarter. On the other hand, Roman and English miles vary slightly. It just so happens that 11 and a quarter English miles equates to, yes, you've guessed it, 12 Roman miles. Whatever the location, and as I said, most historians go for Bigbury Hill, what we do know from Roman records is that the 7th Legion formed a testudo, or tortoise shield formation, with shields to the front, to the sides, and above them, and stormed the fortress. It must have been sweet revenge for the attack on them when they'd been cutting the corn the previous year. Despite capturing the fort and inflicting casualties on the Britons, 
most of the defenders had managed to escape. Nevertheless, with this victory behind him, Caesar, who had already travelled further inland than on his last campaign, was now ready to push forward. Or at least, he was, until the British weather once more intervened. Yet another Channel Storm struck his fleet, and the Roman commander was forced to take his whole army back to the shoreline to salvage his ships. They spent the next ten days and nights pulling the whole fleet above the high tide mark on the shore. Based upon his experiences in the previous year, you do wonder why he hadn't done it in the first place, especially as the enemy had not opposed his landing. Finally, with his fleet secure and no chance being stranded in his far-off island, Caesar once more marched westward through the land of the Cantiarchi in what is now Kent. As they progressed, they came under increasing hit-and-run attacks from the Britons. Not only were the raids conducted on his line of march, but Caesar's troops even had to fight off a large attack while they were building a camp. If Caesar was starting to realise that the Britons were not likely to meekly submit, he definitely realised it the following day when a huge army of Britons, under the leader of the Catavalorni tribe by the name of Cassivalornus, arrived outside his camp. It says something about the threat that Caesar posed, that this army was a multi-tribe army. In other words, they were willing to put their differences aside to counter this Roman threat. The Catavalorni were based north of the Thames in roughly the area of modern-day Hertfordshire, and yet here they were, under their leader, on the other side of the river. In the ensuing battle, the Britons almost reached the Roman standards, but the legions held their composure, and the warriors under Cassivalornus began to fall back. It was now that Caesar unleashed his 2,000-strong cavalry. The battle became a rout. With the heavy defeat suffered by their most fearsome warrior, the multi-tribe coalition started to unravel. Some tribes submitted, others simply went home to see how events would unfold. Caesar continued his advance along the southern bank of the Thames until he found a crossing place somewhere in the vicinity of Brentford. Once more, he found Cassivalornus and his men formed up on the mudflats on the northern bank. In front of them were sharpened sticks, many of which had been placed under the water in the shallows of the ford. Nevertheless, the Romans launched a full frontal assault. Whether it was the shock of this bravery or superior Roman fighting tactics, we don't know. But once more, the Britons were forced to flee. It was about now that a prince from the Trinovantes tribe arrived in Caesar's camp. The Trinovantes occupied the area of modern-day Essex and were locked in a bitter feud with the Catavalorni. The prince, Mandibrasius, asked Caesar for aid to reassert his autonomy over their neighbour. In return for grain and hostages, Caesar agreed. A grateful prince, Mandibrasius, now disclosed the location of Cassivalorni's stronghold deep in the woods of modern-day Hertfordshire. Whilst, once more, there is some debate as to the exact location, many think it was just on the edge of the village of Wheathampstead. Certainly, there is a significant earthwork there, called Devil's Dyke, with a corresponding earthwork a few fields away, indicating a circular fortification. Caesar launched a two-pronged attack on the position and broke into the stronghold. Many defenders were killed and a large quantity of cattle seized. Cassivalornus, who had once more managed to escape capture, nevertheless sued for peace. And Caesar was only too quick to agree, for, according to his writings, he'd already decided to return to Gaul. Maybe that was just spin, because a peace treaty could offer him a face-saving withdrawal from a campaign that, whilst gaining victories, was making slow progress. And indeed, as the Catavalorni leader was making his peace overtures, Caesar heard that his camp on the coast had only just managed to hold off a concerted attack by four kings from the Cantiarchi tribe. Britannia was a harder nut to crack than maybe he had anticipated. 
The wages of victory also seemed to be pretty meagre. Back in Rome, Cicero remarked that there was a distinct lack of gold or silver flowing from this latest campaign. His comments reflected a muted response to the campaign in Rome. Unlike the previous year, despite Caesar's victories and advancing deep into the island, there were no orders for public thanksgiving. Not even one day. In the peace that Caesar negotiated, the Britons were once more to provide hostages, and this time also pay an annual tribute to Rome. Cassivellaunus also agreed not to attack the Trinovantes. And with that, Julius Caesar retraced his steps and his whole army left for Gaul. In many respects, his victory was a Pyrrhic victory. He hadn't decisively defeated the Britons, he hadn't added Britannia to the Roman Empire, and he had left no military presence on the island. Maybe he intended to come back in 53 BC, third time lucky. The fact that Caesar once again took hostages and this time imposed tributes on the British tribes, or at least those whom he had come into contact with in the southeast of Britain, would suggest that he was following standard Roman practices when establishing control over neighbouring territories. But there was to be no return. That winter, the Gauls rose in revolt. The rising shook Roman control of the province to the core. Interestingly, the Gauls received little to no support from their kin in Britannia, so maybe Caesar's invasion of the island did have a benefit for the Romans after all, because they were eventually to crush the revolt. Whilst the Britons seemed to have stayed at home, one person did cross the channel. Caesar's tame Gallic leader, Commius. Remember him? The man Caesar trusted to bring the British tribes over without a fight, but whose role in 55 BC was, well, somewhat unclear as to whose side he was actually on. Well, with his arrival in Gaul, Caesar was left in no doubt as to whose side Commius was on. He joined the rebellion, but was eventually defeated by Gaius Volusinus, the man who had conducted the less than successful scouting for suitable landing places back in 55 BC. Commius managed to escape capture, sailing back across the channel to Britannia. He was to survive for another 30 years, and rather than being a wandering exile, he ended up as a king of the Atrobates tribe in the Hampshire area. He died peacefully in 25 BC, having never seen another Roman army invade Britain. By then, Julius Caesar was long dead. Having defeated the Gauls, he'd ended up in a civil war with Pompey, from which he emerged victorious and became dictator of Rome. He was assassinated in 44 BC. He never returned to Britannia, and it would be nearly 100 years before another Roman army did. Whilst trade between the Roman Empire and the southern British tribes increased during that period, the descendants of the British warriors who had opposed Caesar got on with life as before. After all, the mighty Roman army had come twice and had ended up leaving pretty much empty-handed both times. Any pretensions the Romans had to controlling the Britons swiftly disappeared. The annual tributes to Rome soon stopped and the Catavalorni went back to attacking the Trinovantes as before. The Britons and Britannia remained free. But the Romans had not forgotten about the island on the edge of the world. And they would be back. I'll be telling the story about when the Romans return very soon. But in the meantime, check out all my other episodes. And if you love learning about British history, then sign up for my free weekly newsletter. There's a link in the comments below. I'm Chris Green, the History Chap. Thanks for joining me today. Keep well, and I'll speak to you again very soon.